Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. This episode of Industry Focus was recorded on June 28th, 2021. Some things may have changed between then and when you're hearing this episode. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. This week, Motley Fool Senior Analyst John Rotanti returns to the show to take a look at the industrial gas industry, focusing on one of its most dominant players. John, welcome back on the show. Thanks, Nick. Always love being on the show. I was just thinking back before I came on. I think this is the fourth uh, episode we've done on your on your industrial uh, podcast, and, I, and I've loved it all. It's one of my favorite things I do at the Motley Fool. Well, I'm excited to have you back on. We've got another exciting uh, uh, um, uh, sector to talk about. So in the past, we've talked about water heaters. So we talked about water. Now let's talk about gas. Uh, so why? Uh, so, so I mentioned we're going to talk about Lindy later. But first off, just want to give an introduction into the industrial gas market. Folks who may not be familiar with this, what is it? What do they do? Why does this matter? Why is this important in the world? Lindy is the largest industrial gas company in the world. It generates about 28 billion in sales, has a market cap of 148 billion. Uh, it does have some. It does have net debt of 11.6 billion, so its enterprise value is about 160 billion. Um, but its its balance sheet is very strong, which we can get into. Basically, at a high level, these industrial gas companies they produce a variety of industrial gases using cryogenic air separation and other technologies. Um, and then it sells these gases or these molecules uh, to clients in different industries around the world. It does operate in a global oligopoly with the three largest players being Lindy, Air Liquidy, and Air Products and Chemicals. Combined, those three players have roughly 80% global market share and Lindy has roughly a third of that. Um, there is another market outside of the big three because some customers have their own industrial gas plants. Over time, Nick, that could provide um, a slight growth opportunity because Lindy does occasionally acquire some of these plants um, that, it's, that, that its customers are decommissioning or deconsolidating. But there you have it. It is a global oligopoly. The three largest players have 80% global market share, and Lindy is uh, the largest. I'll say uh, the primary gases sold are oxygen, which is used in, in healthcare facilities, both hospital and home care. People need oxygen. Um, steel mills also uh, use oxygen to heat the blast furnaces. So oxygen is a big one. Hydrogen. That's used for ultra low sulfur diesel. It's used to make electronics. It's used for jet fuel for rockets. Nitrogen is used to make semiconductors. It's used for, uh, let me see, for food freezing. Argon is a big industrial gas used in welding. And then CO2 um, used in beverages for the, for the bubbles in the beverage and in food freezing. So those are the five big gases. The last thing I'll say about the, um, industry is that industrial gases, and one of the things that attracts me to the industry, Nick, is they are an essential product for, go, for global growth and industrial production. I just went through some of the industries they sell into, including electronics and semiconductors. 
Um, so they're an essential product, but they only account for a very small percentage of their customers' total expenses or their customers' total budget, usually only one to 3% of their customers' total budget. And like I said, these gases are sold into everything from steel mills to hospitals to semiconductor fabrication facilities. Yeah, and these things are, are difficult to do, right? I mean, so what, what's the process of, of making these gases? So you mentioned cryogenics. I mean, this is, this is complicated chemistry going on here. It is complicated chemistry. It's it's a highly capital intensive business. Um, cryogenic air separation is the way that they um, that they make their atmospheric gases, that they produce their atmospheric gases. And basically, cryogenic air separation is you chill down, you freeze the these atmospheric gases down to a point where you can separate the primary components of that atmospheric gas. And those primary components are oxygen, nitrogen, and argon. Um, and, and you separate those primary components to where they can be, they can be stored and then shipped and delivered to, to the customers. Process gases, um, non-atmospheric gases like hydrogen and carbon dioxide are, are, are basically manufactured um, using a variety of, of other methods. But there is real chemistry real technology happening here on a molecular level. These are molecules. Yeah, so, so, you, so you mentioned this industry, uh, essential products, global oligopoly. Why does Lindy stand out to you among that oligopoly as the company of interest to you? And just to, uh, I don't think we gave the ticker earlier, it's LIN is the ticker if you're looking to uh, look up the ticker in the US. That's right, Nick, it is ticker LIN. This is a company just to, because you mentioned the ticker, I should have also mentioned, Lindy was founded in 1870-something, maybe, I don't know, 1878, 1879, off the top of my head. It, it merged with Praxair, which we will get into that merger in a second. Um, that Praxair was founded in 1907. Um, and so these are, you know, 100-plus-year-old businesses um, still, to this day, just as relevant, if not more relevant than ever, powering our economy like never before. Um, okay, so here's how it works, Nick. So uh, the business model, there are three, <clears throat> excuse me, fools, allergies. There are three distribution modes. First, Lindy will build an on-site plant um, with a direct pipeline to the customer. Uh, what I mean by on-site is literally on the same grounds or directly next to a customer site. They build one of these air separation plants. On top of that customer's plant, Lindy will add a liquefier and, to liquefy these, these, these gases down. And then they will sell that liquid version of the gas to merchants within a 200 mile radius. Um, so, the, so the first distribution mode is the on-site plant directly piped into the customer through a pipeline. Then they also build a liquefier. They, the second distribution mode is to sell uh, to merchants. Basically, you take the gas from that on-site facility, liquefy it, and put it in a tanker truck on the road that you see on the road. Bring that tanker truck of merchant gas delivered to the customer. That, that liquefied gas is stored in a, in a Lindy-owned storage tank on the customer's facility that Lindy leases to the customer. And then the third distribution mode is they put that liquid gas into smaller metal cylinders 
and that's their packaged industrial gases. So you have on-site, you have merchant, and then you have packaged. Um, the reason I like Lindy, so and Lindy has all three. The reason I like Lindy is it is further along in having all three distribution modes, as far as my research can tell. Um, Air Liquidide is doing all three, but they're, as far as I can tell, a, a couple to uh, several years behind Lindy in doing this network density model. And um, the other major player, Air Products and Chemicals, is just at this point focusing on on on-site at this point. So I feel like Lindy has a more diversified business model. The other thing I, I like about the industry as a whole, Nick, is, is the customer terms, the pricing dy dynamics. So basically these on-site plants, Nick, are 10 to 20 year take or pay contracts. So super long-term contracts, take or pay, they have minimum requirements um that also have cost pass-throughs written into the contract so lindy's biggest costs are natural gas and power and electricity and so if those go up lindy passes those higher natural gas and higher electricity costs onto its customers written into the contract um that's the on-site business 10 to 20 year contracts for the Merchant business, those are five to seven year contracts, or, or let's say three to seven year contracts. Um, and the um, the package, the smaller cylinders, those are, are like two to five year contracts, but these are all long-term contracts. The merchant and the package have historically increased prices year in and year out about 2% per year. So important to note, Nick, the on-site business has long-term 10 to 20-year take-or-pay contracts with annual um, cost pass-throughs pass written into the contract, and the merchant and package businesses have pricing power equal to about 2% annually per year. Yeah, so, so maybe it's helpful to get, give some examples here, right? So you've got the, the on-site business. This is like, you know... You set up a, an air plant. You hook up a pipeline to say an oil refinery or something like that. Sure. Where you're going to use, where you're going to, you know, take this. You're going to use a steady amount of of this product every single day. You can't turn this plant off, right? The merchant business. Think about maybe um, your local restaurant that needs to like use the um, use needs to use like the uh, you know the the, the um, carbon dioxide or what have you in their you know uh, processes or what have you. You have a tank outside outside of the back of the the restaurant. That's where they where they kind of put the product in. And then lastly you know, that the package business is like someone who needs at-home oxygen and they get an oxygen tank delivered on a regular basis to their house. And maybe that goes through a supplier, you know, from Lindy to a supplier before it gets to that that customer. But these are the folks who are, who are using this business model, right? So this big industrial customer, hook it right up into my veins, smaller industrial customer, you need a tank on your facility, and then an individual user, you've got this this smaller individual cylinder tank, like you might see, uh, you know, uh, folks who use use personal oxygen using. And all these customers have different needs and, you know, different different requirements. And you can satisfy all of them from those same facilities, right? You can make uh, uh, some of those deliveries. You can take the stuff that, that you're piping into one of these bigger um, these bigger on-site facilities and instead hook that up to a truck. And that truck goes out to distribute some of these same places. So you use these same resources for multiple uh, uh, distribution modes. Is, is, is exactly right, it It's exactly right. Um, for a lot of small restaurants, I think they're going to use package CO2. Um, in the cylinders, but you're exactly right. Um, massive plants um, have the on-site, literally 
on their on their grounds or right over the it's called over the fence capex literally a pipeline directly next door piping in they don't use all of the gas so so the extra gas that the main that the that the anchor client does not use that the anchor customer does not use is liquefied and transported to other customers within a 200 mile radius this is a really other important part of the business model nick these gases are difficult and expensive to ship um and so these industrial gas companies build these 200 mile radius moats literally all over the world these are geographic moats because it is so difficult and expensive to ship this stuff and what happens is nick this is also really important um something i think the market actually may be missing about lindy and and that i want to highlight is that we talked about the pricing power. The reason Lindy has pricing power, Nick, is because they sell an essential product, as we said, yet account for a very small percent of their customers' overall budget, as we said. But the third part of this is customers need reliable access to these gases. Think about if a hospital doesn't have access to oxygen uh, or, a steel, or a steel mill doesn't have access to oxygen or a semiconductor facility doesn't have access to nitrogen. You know, people die or, or, or production shuts down. So these are essential products. Their customers see them as a utility. They want reliability. And so just as they see their water or their light as a utility, they see Lindy as a utility. And so if Lindy already, or, or if any of these players already have a plant in that 200 mile radius, they, Lindy is more likely to get a second plant in that 200 mile radius because their customers want backup capacity. They want that reliability that you would get from a utility-like company. And so the fact that these customers want reliability, Lindy is more likely to get a second or a third plant within that 200-mile radius. And the same for the other players that are, that are using this network density business model of multiple modes of distribution. So, so there is very little competition within these 200 mile radiuses and you build these moats within this 200 mile radius where you have basically all of the business from the on-site customers and other merchants within that radius it's a really really strong reliable predictable business model if you you know a lot of people talk about recurring revenue one of the most recurring sources of revenue out there, and and you know, and and rightly so, Nick. Rightly so, people talk about software with recurring revenue because of the subscription models. Um, but one of the greatest sources of recurring revenue is when you have uh, Lindy build a plant on your grounds and connect to your facility direct pipeline, or you have a Lindy uh, storage tanker truck on your facilities that Lindy's leasing to you. This is a really um, predictable, high, you know, recurring business model. About 25 to 30% of their revenues come from these 10 to 20 year take or pay contracts. But about another 30% of their revenues, Nick, come from defensive industries like healthcare, like, you know, electronics and technology, um, food and beverage. And so, you know, 60%-ish of their revenue, I would describe as highly predictable or, or recurring in nature. Yeah, so we, we talked about before we hopped on the show, uh, 
John, it, it, to me, it feels kind of like the pipeline companies, the oil and gas pipeline companies, except with none of or much less of the, the environmental concerns. And actually, if you want to get into some of the ESG stuff going on uh, with Lindy, actually trying to help solve some of these problems when it comes to uh, you know emissions and, and gas storage um, and things like that. But when you look at the take or pay contracts, uh, um, you know, steady, steady increase, all those sorts of things, it's, it's infrastructure essentially, but infrastructure with without, uh, you know, some of the negative implications you have of, of other pipeline infrastructure. Totally, Nick. I, 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 I like that analogy, um, especially because Lindy builds pipelines directly giving access to their on-site customers. Um, you know, you mentioned the take or pay contracts. We mentioned the annual price escalators, 2% pricing power. I, I do want to highlight just because you mentioned it, I didn't know if we were going to go here, honestly, but the ESG story is I think underappreciated too. So Lindy has been on the Dow Jones Sustainability World Index for 18 consecutive years, something that no other chemical company can say. It's also on Ethisphere's list of the world's most ethical companies for 2021. It has set a goal to have 30% female employees by 2030. It's on pace to beat that. Um, it's developing and commercializing carbon capture technologies that capture CO2 emissions and then repurpose um, those emissions for food freezing, for dry ice, for carbonated beverages, for water treatment. And then perhaps most exciting of all is that it has this opportunity to sell hydrogen as a green fuel alternative into various industries. I mean, Nick, you know about hydrogen better than me because you follow transportation so closely, but, you know, they can sell hydrogen as a green fuel um, to fuel cell EV manufacturers, to other energy companies, to renewable power producers. And so I think that the hydrogen business in particular and their carbon capture business gives them a degree of optionality, Nick. Yeah, so yeah, I'm not I'm not an expert on the on the hydrogen business by any means, but I would say that the folks that are uh, experts in industrial gases are probably positioned to benefit if that becomes something that that's needed at a at a pretty wide scale because they've been doing it for a long time. The hydrogen business has actually been around for a long time, just not at this huge scale that that might be um, in a world with fuel cells. And you know, there's there's some healthy skepticism about whether that that world materializes, but it's but it's out there. And I think that the carbon capture stuff most certainly is is coming. It is something that we're going to see lots of investment dollars flow towards and where I think these folks can be be big beneficiaries. Lindy has the technology. They're investing in that R&D. They generate, I mean, enormous cash flows. Nick, for such a capital intensive business, if you just pop in a cap IQ um, in your free time or, or whenever, I mean, this is, this is a high teens, uh, mid to high teens, free cash flow margin business, according to cap IQ. It's honestly the, the economics of this business. And we, and we talked about why because of, of the long-term contracts, because of the reliability of the revenue, because of the pricing power, um, because it, 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 the economics of this business are really, really strong. Yeah, so I wanted, I wanted to get into that, John, and just the resiliency and all that. So there's a quote I pulled from uh, the 2020 CEO, his letter to shareholders. It says, excluding the effects of currency, earnings per share, this is in 2020, grew 13% while sales were down 2%. Gross operating cash flow grew 21%, and we returned $4.4 billion to our shareholders between dividends and share repurchases. Return on capital, the single most important metric for a capital-intensive business, grew 180 basis points to 13.4%. Based on our ability to expand free cash flow during the most challenging of economic conditions, we increased our dividend by another 10%. 
representing the 28th consecutive year of dividend increases. These results are a testament to our ability to outperform in any macroeconomic environment. What can you say about you know, the resiliency of the company in the past year? And just, is this an unbreakable business, right? Sales were down 2% in all those good numbers. You know, the, the, the dividend's up another 10%. This is probably the biggest disruption we're going to see in the economy in, you know, decades. And the and this company just kept on ticking. So, uh, Nick, it was, I mean, I love that you bring that up. I actually think you're underplaying that. When you say the biggest disruption we're going to see in decades, we saw for the first time in, in, in recent memory, a global economic shutdown in order to stop the, sp the spread of the COVID virus, a, a global economic shutdown. And during that, as you said, this company barely, its sales barely shrank because of its ability as an exceptional operator. Steve Angel is as good as they come. Okay, he's the CEO. He's as good as they come. In my opinion, he's the first ballot Hall of Famer if such a reward existed for CEOs. Because of their exceptional uh, operating ability, because of the, the, the contract terms that they have, Nick, I mean, we've, we've talked about it several times already on the show, the contract terms, these long-term contracts with escalators built in, they generate highly, highly resilient cash flows. You mentioned the dividend, 28 consecutive years, that makes them a dividend aristocrat. They have a 1.5% dividend yield. Nick, to put this in, into perspective, they grew their dividend 10% in 2020 during a global economic shutdown um, when Disney another one of my favorite businesses, when Disney suspended their dividend, when blue chip companies were suspending or cutting their dividend, Lindy went on like it was nothing, grew their dividend 10%. You mentioned the 13% return on invested capital. That's now 14.5% as of the last 12 months. The reason they're able to do this is because not all CapEx is created equal, Nick. And, and what this company has is uh, like I said, they have these contractually secured growth um, businesses that generate mid-teens returns on invested capital. And the way you get to mid-teens is the on-site business, building a plant on a customer's site, that is a double-digit, after-tax, unlevered IRR. So let's say that's a 10, 11, it's highly capital-intensive. Let's say that's a 10 or 11% return on invested capital business. Then you add on merchant and uh, package, the cylinder business. Those are much more asset light. They're not as capital intensive. And the merchant and the, and the package business has the 2% annual pricing power year in and year out. So those are much higher ROIC businesses. You bring that up to a corporate level mid-teens ROIC business. Now, Nick, th also, this is a growing business. So let's, let's actually model out organic revenue growth here on your show. So uh, let's start with global GDP. I estimate that's going to be 3% going forward. Then on top of that, Lindy's backlog has historically added another 1% to 3% annually. Then on top of that, Lindy historically has increased prices 2%. Finally, I think I'm being conservative. I'm going to add only 1% from secular growth drivers such as healthcare, semiconductors, and then possibly green energy like we talked about. So 3% from global GDP, plus 1% to 3% from backlog, 
plus 2% pricing power, plus 1% from, so from secular growth drivers. I think this company can conservative, conservatively grow revenue organically 7% to 9% on average annually over time. You add in slight margin improvement um, because this is a fixed asset business model. So as they, as they flow more sales volume through that fixed asset base, there will be some operating leverage. And like I said, they're excellent operators. Um, so, so efficiency improvements as well. You add in slight margin improvement and buybacks. And I think this is easily a company that can grow earnings per share at least 10% over the long term. Yeah. And in a business like this, where the runway, you've already got this business has been around for 100 plus years, probably going to be around 100 plus years into the future. You know, 10% revenue growth in a vacuum maybe doesn't get a lot of people excited when you look at a lot of these SaaS companies that are, you know, growing 30 plus percent, what have you. 10% revenue growth for 50 years is a big, crazy, crazy big number. Like that's the perspective you have to have for a company like this. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned seven to 9% organic revenue uh, growth and then at least 10% earnings per share growth. But you're, you're exactly right, Nick. Something that I, I, I talk about on Twitter quite often is long duration growth companies. They may be moderately growers. They may not be the fastest growers, but if they can do it over decades at a mid-teens return on invested capital and continue to compound that dividend per share year in and year out for the next 28 years, I think you have a solid long-term investment opportunity. Not to mention, Nick, this balance sheet, um, if you're just scanning, like screening for companies um, with, with net debt, you see that it has 11 or 12 billion, I don't know what it is, uh, net debt. And, 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 and at first glance, you may avoid this company. No, Nick, this is honestly an under-levered balance sheet. Its debt to capital ratio is only 25%. Its interest coverage, which is operating income or EBIT divided by interest expense is 18. That's the highest interest coverage in at least a decade, according to Cap IQ. It has an A credit rating from both S&P Global and Moody's. It has an attractive credit rating uh, from New Constructs, and that's their second highest possible score. As of March 31st, uh, 2021, 77% of their debt is in the form of long-term fixed rate corporate debt. Uh, so this is not bank debt, not variable debt. 77% is long-term fixed rate. And Nick, its cost of debt is so low. Listen to this. In August 2020, Lindy issued 10-year bonds with a 1.1% interest rate. Okay, and they issued 30-year bonds with a 2% interest rate. But Lindy issued 10-year bonds with a 1.1% interest rate. Get this. On that very same day, Google parent company Alphabet, on that very same day, also issued 10-year bonds at the exact same 1.1%. This is an extremely strong balance sheet company. And honestly, Nick, given the utility-like nature of this business, the stable recurring cash flows that we talked about, I think there's room to make the balance sheet slightly more efficient um, by you know, increasing that invested capital turnover, which would drive returns on invested capital even higher. Right. With a cost of debt at 1% and a double digit uh, return on invested capital, 
as a shareholder, you would like them to lever up it. If they, if they can find efficient projects that return those historical uh, types of returns, that would be fantastic. You're exactly right. You're talking about something called the, the economic spread or the spread between a company's return on invested capital and its cost of capital. And, and Lindy's is, is, is quite large. Yeah, don't say that's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so we, we've we've said lots of uh, um, really positive things about the company, John. Any risks to highlight um, for folks? You know, the, the Lindy's growth is somewhat tied to global GDP, um, and you know that was the base at which I I built my my revenue estimate that I built my revenue ladder off of was global GDP. If we see, you know, a sustained downturn in the economy, Lindy's sales will fall. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's the biggest risk on the horizon. It's going to be short term in nature. Lindy will survive. Like I said, this company was founded in 1870. It will come out of it probably stronger, Nick, because of its strong cash flows. Maybe it can make some, some uh, smart investments or acquisitions at the bottom of the market at distressed prices. But, you know, if for, for, for investors, if they don't like to see a stock price fall, you know, in the short term, I think that's the biggest risk that we see some sort of sustained global economic shutdown. Uh, I'm not shut down, global economic recession. And, and that would affect probably the stock price in the short term. That's the biggest risk that I see right now. I, I, you know, I see Lindy as a company that's un-Amazonable, if you will. You know, this is, this is a, a wide moat, I think, highly resilient, fairly predictable business. Right. Oligopoly business, just screw earnings, double digits, uh, as we mentioned uh, during the pandemic when we had this, this wide-scale economic shutdown. N the nature of the contracts is, is such that folks have to meet minimum requirements, even if there is an economic downturn. So you have a floor to your downside on a lot of these deals. This is a really, really resilient business. Uh, I, you know, One of these that I think can, can fit into you know, if you need if you need an industrial allocation or need, need a, a part of your portfolio that you just feel comfortable about, or you're or you're looking for income with that, you know, growing 10% during the dividend, 10%, um, you know, this this past year, I, I think it's it's a great uh, a great uh, potential holding. John, any last thoughts on Lindy before we hit the road? No, Nick, I'll say two quick ones. One is uh, Steve Angel and his team; they understand the drivers of intrinsic value growth and one proof point for that is their pay is based on return on invested capital over a three-year period. So long-term focused return on invested capital, that's how they are incentivized. The last thing I'll say is, fools, um, if you are going to go do a screen for this or going to go look at its financials, you'll see that its gross margins, 44%, are back are, are at pre-merger levels. They merged with Praxair in 2018. EBIT margins on a gap generally accepted accounting principle basis are down from like 22% to 15 to 16%. This is strictly because of an accounting um, regulation thing, has nothing to do with their true earnings power. Basically what happened was when they merged with Praxair, purchase price accounting or PPA um, forced them to write up Praxair's assets on the day of the merger, on October 31st, 2018, this was a one-for-one for one merger, Nick. No cash exchanged hands. One-for-one one merger. Because of this, they are forced to write up the value of Praxair's assets on the day of the merger. Because that of that asset write-up, um, depreciation jumped hugely 
off the top of my head, I think it was from like 1 billion a year to 4 billion a year. Depreciation, Nick, as you know, and as our members know, is an expense on the income statement. It subtracts on the income statement. So EBIT margins on a gap basis are down to 15 to 16%. It's a meaningless number. Um, it's strictly accounting. So on an adjusted basis, EBIT margins are back to their pre-merger level. Last thing I'll say is if Praxair's and Lindy's stock price were the same on October 31st, 2018, on the day of the merger, then no write-up would have had to happen. Lind uh, Lindy would not have had to write up Praxair's assets. That depreciation would not have jumped and the gap uh, EBIT margin would not have fallen as it did. So if you're just looking at that, understand what is driving that. And on an adjusted basis, Lindy is highly, highly profitable. Excellent, John. Thanks for joining me on the show. As always, can't wait to have you on again next time. Nick, thanks. Love being on the show. Can't wait for next time. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For John Rotanti, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on.